Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engines so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. Registration is now open for our next event, the Planet Microcap Showcase taking place in Las Vegas at the Horseshoe Hotel and Casino, formerly Bally's, on April 25 through 27, 2023. Expect three days of networking, company presentations, one-on-one meetings, in short, a lot of fun. If you follow our community and especially invest in microcap stocks, you're not going to want to miss this. Expect more announcements on speakers, presenting companies, the whole, the works. So to register and attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. For today's show, I invited on Herman Petersheck, founder and portfolio manager at Hypernormal Capital Management. I met him recently when he participated in the Stock Pitch World Cup on Team Europe. Also a U.S. resident, he was on Team Europe because he was pitching a video game development company based in Europe. I started thinking about my own experience with video games, and it took me a minute because in my heyday, I was only playing FIFA and Madden on PlayStation 2. Safe to say the gaming industry has grown a lot since then. I've also interviewed a number of microcap companies that would describe themselves as a gaming company or gaming adjacent. And while it doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize the explosion of video games, some of the newer entrants and business models haven't quite made a whole lot of sense to me. So I brought on Herman, who has 20 plus years experience working and investing in the gaming industry to cure me of my old man syndrome and hopefully help all of us better understand how to think about investing in this space. Thank you again for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Herman Petersheck. This episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense. You can find them at streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that is starting to become an integral part to investors' research process. They have a number of interviews on a wide variety of companies, including TMT, consumers, industrials, real estate, and more. Stream provides over 300 expert interviews per week, and 70% of their experts are found exclusively on Stream. 
Stream is unlike any other transcript libraries. Stream integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Stream's community of experts and thought leaders partner with Stream to build their professional brands and expand their industry influence. Right now, there are approximately 8,500 plus call transcripts available. For more information, please visit www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co backslash PMC. Herman, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's appreciate great. being on here. Absolutely. It's great to have you. Um, before we get started, I'd like to invite everyone. You know, I met Herman because he was part of Team Europe for the uh, Stock Pitch World Cup. And uh, I, it was just fantastic pitch. You know, that's not a recommendation of the company. It was just a great pitch. Uh, <laughs> so check him out there. And, uh, you know, I wanted to talk more because the company he actually pitched on there was a company in the video game space. And I wanted to dive a bit deeper in, into the idea of gaming, because this as an industry or a sector or whatever, how you ever want to categorize it, feels very esoteric, you know, in a good way, because there's lots of new business models and new ways in which folks are entering the space. But at the same time, it's now also, even for me, quite confusing. You know, I've done a number of interviews with companies in the gaming industry now in my career and then especially in the last six months. And it seems that each new company has a new business model and a new way in which they're attacking this. So let, let's start there. How should we think about the idea of the gaming industry just as a whole? And then we'll and then we'll dig deeper. Yeah, that, I mean, it's a great question. Um, and I, I want to preface it by saying I worked in the gaming industry for about 20 years before I started um, life as a, I guess, a professional investor. Investing was my hobby. Video games were my hobby. And so gaming was my job. Investing was my hobby. And now I've kind of inverted that a little bit. Um, and before that, of course, I played lots of games growing up and I learned how to program because I wanted to make games. So gaming was kind of my life. And I never invested in game companies um, during that time, uh, mostly because um, I think I understood the gaming industry reasonably well from working in it. And um, my conclusion at that time was it's not a great industry to invest in. Um, and the reason why that is, is because it's like other forms of entertainment. It's incredibly hit driven. Um, nobody knows what the next hit is going to be. Um, you can have a game that's monstrously successful for years, and then all of a sudden it falls off a cliff for apparently no reason. Um, and so as a, a, a an individual successful game, is one of the best businesses in the world. But the gaming industry itself, I think, is not awesome um, because of these characteristics. So that uh, before before that turns into, wait, why are we even talking on this podcast now? I kind of changed my mind in the last few years because I, th I took to heart um, something I think uh, Charlie Munger and Buffett, a bunch of other people who are great investors, have said it many times. They talk about um, circle of competence and... Um, and how important it is to stay in it versus um, how wide it is. And so I realized gaming companies are the exact dead center of my circle of competence, whether I like it or not. And I think I was running away from them because I understood them so well. I, it almost created a, 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 too much fear 
Well, why were um, you why 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 were you running? I mean, obviously you mentioned how it's like, you know, it's just all about the hits, but why else? Was there other reasons why? Because you knew the industry so well? Well, uh from a from a from a disposition perspective, um I am someone who likes um you know, I subscribe to the idea that you want to try to um be able to you want to invest in companies that you can predict over some period of time greater than a few years, three, five, ten years, preferably. And the longer, the better. I really took that to heart. And the gaming industry is almost the, it's like as far away as you can get from that, normally speaking. Um, so that was the, that was the other reason is like structurally, it just was the exact opposite of how I thought good investing, like good investing is you buy Coca-Cola and then you go to sleep for a hundred years, you know, like that's, that was sort of my disposition and you avoid <laughs> anything unpredictable, you know, and so, um, so for the longest time, that's kind of how I behaved, and um, I've been, I've been rethinking that because that that competes with the circle of competence problem. And so, I'll give you an example. Like, let's say you invest in something like Procter and Gamble, right? So, if you're like me and you're moderately ignorant about consumer products industry, like I've never worked at a consumer products company, ever been the CEO of a company like Procter and Gamble, so I have no idea how random things affect their long-term business outlook. But I'm a user of their product, so I can say, well, I'm going to be you know, brushing my teeth and using toilet paper forever, so it's a safe bet. And it looks that way, but maybe if I understood the business in incredible detail, it wouldn't look quite so safe anymore. I, I don't know for sure. And so I think with gaming, that's kind of what happened to me, is I, I understood it so well, it scared me off. And so I started rethinking it much more deeply. And I think so this this is a very uh, long way to not answer your question, but now I'm going to get to the answer of your question. Um, I think what is really important to understand is that uh, gaming companies occupy, uh, it has a lot to do with the philosophy of why the company exists. Um, so there's some gaming companies and they're basically marketing businesses so what they do is they look at the landscape and they say oh first person shooters are hot so we're going to make first person shooters and then what we're going to do and mobile games are hot so we're going to make a first person shooter on a mobile platform and then we're going to spend tons of money marketing it get to the top of the google and app store try to get it in front of as many players as possible sell lots and lots of copies if it's a box product um, and then, you know, two months from now, no one will buy it ever again. Right. And then next, if it, if it, and we'll do that to like 20, 30 games, 18 of them will fail, two of them will succeed, and we'll just rinse and repeat that. And then once in a while, they find something that really works well, and then they can kind of turn it into a franchise maybe and release a new version every year or two and keep increasing the production value and so on. So that's one kind of gaming company. Um, Another kind of gaming company are the ones that sort of like, uh, you know, they're sort of publishers. And so they try to scour the world looking for the next Minecraft or something. And they try to get it early and then release that. And and that's another numbers kind of game, also very unpredictable. Um, and there's a few others like that. But the ones, the one that I like uh, are there's every once in a while there's a gaming company and what they do is they they think about themselves as an audience company so they kind of go 
you know, so, uh, you know, you mentioned 11-bit, which I am a shareholder of, right? And so 11-bit's a very a, a strange-looking game company compared to these other ones because these guys sort of look at the world and they go, you know, there's all these war games out there. And we really want to, we want to tell a story of people who are the survivors of a war. So they made this game, this war of mine, that's about surviving a war. You're a civilian and you're like bartering for stuff and trying to keep your people alive and stuff. So it's a very dark, gritty game. And so they're trying to find stuff that's like deep and meaningful. And then the other thing they're trying to do is they're like, we want, we want our players to play these games for like 10 years, the same game. And we'll add content to it with uh, digital downloads or if it's a service, they'll keep adding services to it. And they really see each game as like this incredibly long-term investment. Um, and every product they take with that level of seriousness. Um, and to me, that's a, that's a different orientation because it results in what happens is um, you tend to craft things that uh, you, you make a relationship with the audience. That's much deeper. Players don't feel like, they're being sort of like treated as a commodity. And so they get this, they get this relationship with the, with the company. And then that relationship makes them get other fans. And then the, the sort of fan base grows a little bit and it grows a little bit more and a little bit more and it widens. And then it deepens as those fans play one type of game like that. Maybe they play another game that's kind of like that. And so that to me is a much more, if you can execute it well, it's a more predictable and longer term business model mm. um but, but it's not common for sure so like one of the main reasons i want to bring you on here because like as as you kind of alluded to gaming has gone beyond just publishers right that's how we traditionally really thought of at least for me really thought about the the gaming industry now you know with sports betting becoming more and more legal on in more states in the u.s um and also now computer games really taking off and having building out even bigger global audiences you know i've been doing a number of interviews with companies that are on kind of that connector side right where they're they have relationships with global brands and they're saying that they're bringing these global brands into the gaming and esports communities or um you know stuff like that or, or they have technology to connect gamers to creators you know there's just there's all these kind of ancillary things that are different than just like your normal picks and shovels for like, let's say a mining industry, you have your picks and shovels businesses, you know, it, it's, a, it's a little bit different because, and, and, and for me, when I'm trying to understand these businesses a little bit better, you know, I'm trying to do my best to have that, that, that BS meter of like, what, what are you really telling me here? You know, like, is that your moat is that you have these relationships with these brands better than someone else. But, you know, if these brands are so strong, why aren't they making their own relationships themselves? You know, so it, it's kind of, I, I, I find myself sometimes getting even more confused even after the conversation where I'm like, what is this business? Like, what is, what is happening here? You know, so when you're looking at some of these businesses, which I'm sure you have, how do you think about it? That's a great question. And I think that kind of goes to the heart of it. And I can tell you how I think about it. That doesn't mean that I'm right and it does, or that it's exclusively right or that those are going to be the most successful companies. But in terms of what I find predictable, um, what the way I look at this is I really pay a lot of attention. And, and it's funny because normally you read, you know, the 10K and the financials first. And I think that's important. But I actually really like to read the companies. Um, annual report like their 
the what that what would normally be considered their marketing material to investors. And what I look for is if the company is talking about their customers as sort of like a commodity that they're trying to extract money from, I'm almost always out immediately because that to me shows a you if you do that it it means that inside your company you're not prioritizing a value and honest relationship with your players you know and i think if you do that you can be very successful but what you're the game you're playing is you know um and this is i i don't know if this is as true in sports gaming i'm you know gambling or whatever i'm guessing it is but the game you're playing is very simple you're going to make a product and let's say it costs like a million dollars or something to make it and then you're going to market it right in order to and you want to make back you know 1.2 million for every million you spend or whatever right so the game is can you spend enough in advertising to attract enough people to spend enough money to overcome the cost and if you can then you just crank that and try to multiply it bigger and bigger right and in that in, in that e- because that's a hot industry right what happens is it attracts competitors and that drives the price of marketing up And so I think what's happening to a lot of these companies is as more people enter the space, more and more of them compete, it drives the cost of marketing up and that drives the margins down. And if you don't have any loyalty with your with your um with your players, with your customers, if you haven't built any loyalty to them, they'll just go from one thing to the next. They don't care. And so that's where I think games become very unpredictable. Um so that is, I think, a key. So when you're reading through so for example, um if you if you look at like games workshop who make warhammer and i i i'm a i i own shares in games workshop as well right if you read their annual report right it's written by the ceo kevin roundtree who was coo and he turned the business around in terms of its operations um like you know i think the mission statement of the company is something like to make the best fantasy figurines in the world profitably forever like that's and it's in like their annual report. And he's like, all we want to do is make this incredible game for these diehard fans for eternity at a profit. That's our business model. We're not trying to squeeze ARPU. We're not trying to chase MOBAs or MMOs or whatever else. We're just focusing on that connection with the audience. And that's kind of what I'm looking for. Um, and it's rare. So, I mean, so you don't even look at some of these like marketing these companies that are that don't really make the games but are in the gaming industry kind of on the outskirts of it because like my my biggest gripe and this is because i'm not a gamer and i mean I, you know i played a little bit when i was a kid but it's yeah. not like there's like a lot of marketing while you're playing the game you know maybe there's some subtle things that you don't realize and but that's usually while in the making of the game itself right like if it's you know if they're making a i mean toyota probably wouldn't be in grand theft auto but just you catch my drift like <laughs> you know lamborghini's probably talking to grand theft auto like hey put our latest line you know and there's probably a deal but that's not something that that's that's a little deeper. What I'm talking about is like once the game is made and now there's all this, you know, global brand connecting, you know, advertising. I mean, for you as a gamer, I'm assuming you still play a little bit. I mean, yeah. how how does that experience really look when it's a game made by a company and they got certain ads in there, you know, how does it affect gameplay? Like is there a re- is is there an, a business here? Or is this something that most of the gaming community is like, all right, whatever, like we don't even really pay attention to this. 
Yeah, I, th I think that's a great question. I think there absolutely is a business there. I mean, so a great example is like if you look at esports, um, you know, and when I was working at Riot Games before I did this, you know, we were really heavily into esports and and sponsorship was a was a big question, you know, and 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 we addressed it very much from this perspective of like, well, what feels authentic to the watcher? So like if you're a League of Legends fan and you're watching the finals and, you know, and there's a Coca-Cola ad there. Is that okay? And my opinion is it is okay because, and, and I'm not saying it's it, it's okay because of some objective moral rationality or whatever, but like if I watch a football game or a hockey game and I see a Coca-Cola sign, it doesn't take me out of it. In fact, if you play like, um, you know, EA sports games or something, real ads in the game make it feel more authentic because those are the ads you see in the real world. So that's fine um you know but it's it's tricky you know because like you if you go if you go overboard it can right away feel very alienating you know or you start to feel very suspicious about wait you know why is that you know is that sponsorship placement overkill like would you be okay if you watched um you know, like the stadium naming is a great example. Like some people, I used to live in Denver, and when they renamed Mile High Stadium and Vesco Field at Mile High, it pissed a lot of people off because they were like, no, that's Mile High Stadium. Some company shouldn't be able to just take our name, right? So you got to be careful, right? If you rename the Green Bay Packers, the Green Bay Bank of Americas, I think you'd have a problem, right? So but the way that you the, there's the way you do this is the organization that's making these decisions has to have a very good connection with the um with the uh with the with the fans and with the product so they can make these kind of nuanced intuitive type decisions a great example by the way you can check this out it when nfts became popular a bunch of game companies were like Hey, we're going to make NFTs of this. They got a lot of backlash from the gaming community because the gaming community was like, you're just trying to you're trying to make a quick buck off this craze. F you. And so a lot of them kind of undid it really quickly because they realized that, you know, their fans didn't like that. So that's an example of where you have to be careful. And that's again why I think I I try to look for game companies that have this orientation. Now you did mention briefly like the size of the org so you mentioned Grand Theft Auto, which is Take Two, and I think Take Two is a very well-run game company. Like the CEO is pretty awesome, right? And they're doing they're doing great stuff. Shareholder, um, I'm not a shareholder of Take Two. Thank you, sir. And the the challenge the challenge with some of those with the bigger companies is, um, and this is part two of investing in game companies that I think is hard is. Um, it's very hard for those companies to get like 10, 20, 30 times bigger. Right. So if you if you're a two hundred million dollar video game company, if you have a couple of if you have a breakout hit, you know, so if you just make good games, you can and you're make it profitably, you can have a pretty good business. But you have the chance of doing something that does insanely well, and then you can become a two billion dollar company and you can stay there. But if you're like a twenty or a forty billion dollar company, like it's hard for Activision to get ten times bigger. Now, it was possible when it, when Bobby Kotick first sort of took it over and that's, you know, he did, he 
he multiplied it massively through very intelligent acquisitions, I think. But so it's hard for these big companies to get a lot bigger. So I, I, I was on Twitter. I was talking about Grand Theft Auto 6 a little bit because, you know, a bunch of stuff leaked and they're probably going to. So Grand Theft, Grand Theft Auto 6 is going to come out. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to play it. It's probably going to be a great game. But if it does as well as Grand Theft Auto 5, it's not going to make Take 2 much bigger, right? It's just going to be instead of making money here, they're now going to make it there. It's much hard. It's very hard for Grand Theft Auto Six to be ten times bigger than Grand Theft Auto Five. I think. So is that why some of these gaming companies are more open to talking with more advertisers? Because right, I mean, it's one thing to build a monster, but now you got to start thinking about other ways in which to make money, other different revenue streams. I mean, that's why they were open to trying out NFTs. You know, but you brought up right. an interesting point about that delicate balance between understanding your fan base and then also working with advertisers, which makes it interesting when you think about some of those advertising connector business models, because it's like, okay, you can't just flood, you know, you can't just work with any global brand because not any global brand might will work with every game, you know, because most of the gaming community has either you know and their own ethos but it's probably all very derivative of each other if i if i would say mm-hmm. so i i guess my main question there is when you know when when you're starting to really think about and and again i apologize if i'm talking too much about the advertiser side of things but in the microcast space you're not dealing with a lot of game makers so to speak yeah. you're mostly dealing with the folks that are kind of servicing on the on the you know the outskirts you know again not not making the games themselves but helping maybe enhance some of those business models so that's why i'm kind of i'm bringing it up a little bit more than maybe just say talking specifically about activision there's enough people talking about you know the the game makers themselves yeah uh, um so you're talking about like the companies that are a service to connect advertisers to the games yes that kind of a thing yeah um yeah, I mean, I saw that when it was in its inception. It really became, it started to grow when the massively multiplayer online games were becoming popular because, you know, it was just, you know, the advertising industry is constantly, they're very intelligent people. And what they do is, my understanding is, they basically go, where are people's eyeballs? And let's put something in front of their eyeballs that has some logo on it. And then we can, you know, that's a toll bridge for us. And video games is a great one because like, not only do you have this captive audience, I mean, they're, when you're playing a game, you're not passively looking at the screen. Mostly you're looking very closely. And the person who's looking is you at least was a young, usually male person with disposable income. So it was like a dream come true for advertisers. And you have perfect information. I can tell you exactly who it was, how long they looked, where they looked, what they were doing, how long they did it. So that was very attractive. Um, The problem I have is like, it's not very hard to build those connections. And so I would struggle to understand why a company would have a any kind of a competitive advantage over another one. I guess the ones maybe that might, and just thinking out loud here, would be the ones maybe that are building out their own content creators themselves. Like, let's say, you know, you have those folks that are very popular on Twitch or TikTok that are active gamers, you know, and they have a bunch, you know, they have them, I don't know, some sort of contracts with them where, you know, hey, you want to reach, you know, this hundreds of millions of potential eyeballs because we work with these 10 content creators that are all part of our holding company or whatever, you know, here's some of the deals that you can do. I guess that that's seemingly where 
there can be some some and, and that's and honestly actually that's what I've seen in a few of these names. Yeah, there's a lot of um that's a it's a very hot business, I think, talent management of people like streamers and yeah. things like that. And um it seems I haven't looked at it in great detail. From what I see, it's incredibly fragmented. And my guess is like the big companies, like who is a big like image or somebody like that, like the ta- big talent, they're just gonna like vacuum up the oh, small firms sure. that win and you know and and try to suck that up but interestingly there's a guy um he runs a um a small game publisher in the UK called No More Robots and um that's the company name his name's I think Mike Rose and he has talks on on marketing and I think um in one of his talks he says you know if you can get a influencer to play your game, that used to be like a big thing to get your game out there. And that sort of eroded very quickly. Like it doesn't have the same impact it used to have, which I thought was interesting. So zooming back a little bit, like what I think is if you're going to invest, if you're going to look at these companies like that are either uh, intermediaries for ad sales or talent representatives or things like that, um, you you want to really really understand like who is the talent they're representing and what is the experience of the game developers using that in order to try to increase their business because it's a very it's a very hit or miss thing and um and i also think like i'm i'm hesitant to say it cuz i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to demigrate anybody but i think the the speed that the gaming industry has grown, especially in esports and especially now with Web3 and NFTs and everything, has attracted a lot of people who are of questionable character. And so you have to be really careful now. I think a hundred percent. Couldn't agree with those sentiments more. But and actually there's a, there's a lot of good salespeople, and I'm not yeah. a good salesperson, and I have a really hard time sussing out when it I don't know how good my bullshit detector is when I'm mm. talking to somebody who's really, really good at bullshitting. It's they're probably better at bullshitting than I am detecting it. And so I have to be, I try to look really from the bottom up, you know? Gotcha. So like, if I was looking at this company to be like, okay, which streamers does this, does this company represent or which games did this company sell ads to? Cause I know those games and I can then go, you know, try to contact the people who made them and talk to them about it or something. Like I wouldn't trust anything that the person told me. And for everybody listening that's looking to invest in this space, I highly would recommend utilizing what Herman just said. Like, do your channel checks if you can, or at a minimum, contact Herman and he. Uh, <laughs> but you know, another topic I actually wanted to to talk to speak with you today was on esports. You know, you, mm-hmm. you kind of brought it up in your answer in that last bit there, and because another type of gaming company that I've that I've interviewed now in the last you know year and change have been, you know, these companies that are working with, you know, various franchises on their their esports franchise and it just seems like an endless bottomless pit which I know is probably what's attractive about this but it's like all right you're going to go to every sports franchise and say hey your League of Legends team oh this new game is now hot okay you're now new game is hot team or and like just trying to make sense of like how do you value these franchises cuz i get it i'm sure there's definitely going to be people watching tournaments and all that like ESPN has made a big deal about this so i'm not i'm not trying to be like 
you know, poo-pooing any of this or anything, but just from an investment perspective, trying to value what these franchises are really worth. And, and you're basing it almost like a commodity of when, you know, how hot this game is or not, or whether it's now an old game or whatever, you know, how, how should folks think about esports and maybe these companies that are kind of trying to buy up esports franchises or help launch them and, and all that jazz. Yeah. Um, Big topic. It, I'm sorry. It, no, I mean, no, it's a, it's a it great question. So again, like I, I have a very naive approach, I guess, in that and, and it's the same, whether it's games or esports. Like I always try to think back to like, well, why does somebody watch League of Legends or Overwatch or, you know, or why do they watch Grand Theft Auto streamed on Twitch or why do they watch chess games or Dungeons and Dragons campaigns? Like people watch all kinds of stuff. Um, and, you know, sports is one of them, you know, and for the longest time, you know, you basically had football, hockey, golf, and so on. And then um, I think, I, you know, I was lucky in that I was at Riot when League of Legends sort of grew as an eSport. And I think it was the, there was eSports quite a long time before League of Legends. I mean, people used to watch like, you know, there were arcade world championships where you'd watch somebody play Donkey Kong for four hours or whatever. And there were like, you know, Street Fighter championships that were very popular, but it was very niche. Uh, I think League of Legends was the first thing where it was like, you know, in major, major sports stadiums. Um, and uh, I think the thing that people get wrong is, and this is, a, I think to me, it's a very important thing to understand the structure is like, when you think about normal sports, you don't think about like, um, you don't think of like uh, a sports fan may, just because somebody watches basketball, doesn't mean they like baseball, right? It, it, you may like one game and hate the other. You may like two and dislike the rest, right? So when we think about sports, we don't, we don't, and and because we have this esports bucket, we kind of say like there's baseball, football, basketball, and then there's all these video games. And that's not how it is at all. Video games are just like on the sports side. There's people who watch League of Legends and they don't watch anything else. There's people who watch Overwatch, they don't watch anything else. They watch Fortnite, they don't watch anything else. Okay, and 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 so as a result of that, like the vertical matters a great deal right um and what you'll see when you see this so and then because but because you know people can say oh look how many millions of people watch the finals of league of legends or Fortnite or whatever it's a great way to sort of market a business and say i can take this other game and turn it into that but you can't you know you usually can't it's sort of like remember the xfl right so you can say oh people love football but the NFL only runs during the season. So we're going to start this other football league. And we're if we can get, you know, 20% of the viewers, we'll have a big success. But you can't. You can't even get 2% of the viewers because NFL fans don't want to watch the XFL. They don't They don't care. They already have their game. They'd rather watch, you know, um, nothing almost or reruns or something. You know, um, so it's the same kind of thing. Like to develop a sport is quite difficult. Like how many sports have been successfully created in the last hundred years? Maybe a dozen. So, you know, some guy in Florida was trying to, I can't remember who it was. He was trying to make highlight like a mainstream sport and he spent tons of money on it. Is it a mainstream sport? No, it's not. So it's remarkably difficult. Um, and I think uh, it's not, it's not an accident that the, the top esports, you know, which maybe it's like free fire, overwatch, league of legends, Fortnite. I mean, they're largely owned by the companies that own the sport, 
right? Which is kind of interesting. Um, so we sh- so <laughs> in layman's terms, we should give <laughs> some weight to when when there are these, you know, a Dallas Cowboys Fortnite team or like a New York Yankees, you know, Overwatch team, like th- these these because these are games that truly have that huge fo- by the way i apologize to any gamer that's watching this you're speaking <laughs> to a complete noob um i tried playing computer games once when i was in middle school and all my friends like i i couldn't do it but i was but but i'm still fascinated by the industry that's why i'm talking to Herman today so i just want to make sure that's clear but but getting back to the idea like so when you see some of these franchises, you know, mainstream sports franchises have their, you know, esports subsidiary, that's, you know, that that's something to really take into consideration and look at because there actually are these leagues and generating eyeballs. And it is actually very difficult to have to really start up a new game league. But that's also something to think about too, when you have a company that's saying that they can do that. So yeah, I, I think, I think where, where, where I think it is, uh, an interesting opportunity and there have been people that entrepreneurial people who started early and they've been very successful at it is like um you know sort of like the football club model you know where like if if a game becomes really popular like say Fortnite or whatever um you basically you you create your pro Fortnite team and you go compete in that space and you're competing both for you know winning tournaments but also using that to drive sort of uh, fan base, you know. And so, it, let's say you and I start a, a esports franchise, and we're gonna we're gonna pick these four games, you know, and we're gonna build teams to compete in those four games, and then we're gonna build a franchise around that brand, right? I mean, I think that is a very lucrative opportunity, you know. I mean, like I think, and then there's definitely cases of it. Like, I I'll go back to like you know, the Green Bay Packers or whatever, right? But like, um, you know, the Green Bay Packers have an incredibly strong brand, completely independent from the NFL in some ways, you know? Um, Now, of course, without professional football, that wouldn't exist. But, you know, the New York Yankees have a brand that is in some ways independent from baseball, right? It's global and so on. Um and you know Manchester United or something like that. So I think that is another place that's really interesting. And there are people who have built successful businesses around that. And from the perspective of predictability, I think it's probably more predictable. Like, you know, if if you could if you could own the Green Bay Packers, for example, as a business, it's very hard for me to believe that in 50 years there will be no Green Bay Packers. I think they'll be around. I think their stadium will be full. Their season tickets will sell out. There'll be, you know, there'll be people wearing jerseys all over the place. You know, so that's probably a very good business, you know. Um, so I think that's an interesting area to look for sure. Absolutely. So I want to now uh, transition to talking a little bit about, you know, what's worked in gaming in 2022 what didn't work and let's start there and then we'll talk about you know looking ahead as well so in your opinion what's worked what didn't work in 2022 in the gaming industry well 2022 was a tough year because you know covid you know covid really supercharged uh gaming 
both in terms of speculative investments, so multiples, but also in terms of actually people buying and playing games. Because if you're stuck at home, you play a lot of games. So, you know, we saw, you know, along with the everything bubble, gaming was probably, I think, I don't know if I haven't looked at done a statistical regression or anything, but my guess would be that gaming companies on average were probably more bubbly than other than the average company. And now they've reverted uh, to some degree, at least many of them have. So I think 2023 is looking quite a bit better. Um, in terms of what works, uh, like you're talking about like themes or or that kind of thing. Um, so I believe that uh, there was a there was a bunch of companies that got distracted by like the crypto NFT stuff. Um, and now there's a great deal of money. It's mostly from the venture capital community that's going into like pay to earn web three metaverse. There's a lot of money pouring into that. Um, it confuses me, you know, because, um, you know, uh, so let's, I can take those one by one if you want. Uh, so like, let's take pay to earn. Please. Okay, so, yeah, let's do it. So there's this, I, there's this idea, right. That like, um, let's say you play a game like world of Warcraft and you spend, you know, six months grinding for this, you know, really rare sword or something. And you get the sword. And then the question is, do you own the sword? Well, you don't own the sword. Blizzard owns the sword. And so if Blizzard wants to take the sword from you, they can, if they turn off the game, the sword disappears and it's gone forever. And so that's created, you know, through blockchain, um, this desire that this, this idea that like you as the player should own the sword, Right not blizzard and and then and that opens up a bunch of possibilities the first possibility is you can trade the sword to other people for real money and you can use the sword in other games or something neither of those things make any sense to me the first one doesn't make sense to me because that's been around forever like when i first started playing like mmos back in the 90s like there was a game called ultima online that was like one of the first major successfully mmos and like there's a whole story of like this company in Mexico. I think they were called Black Ice or something. And they hired a bunch of people. And all those people did is farm gold, which was the currency of that game, and sell it on eBay. And Origin, uh, which was owned by Electronic Arts, the company that made um, the game, they tried really hard to crack down on that because it was kind of ruining the economy of the game. And, and so you'd go on eBay and there were tons of Ultima Online items for sale all the time. So people were selling these fantasy items. There's a guy named Julian Dibble. He wrote a game called, he wrote a book called Play Money, where he was trying to earn a living selling virtual items. This is 1998. So this is not, none of this is new. This has been around. Every time there's an MMO, there's a market for it. Where, and then the companies try to crush it, not because they hate the market necessarily, although that might be why. It's because it ruins the game. And so, like, very famously, Diablo 3 released with a real money auction house. And the reason why they did that is because Diablo 2 had this eBay, you know, black economy problem. So people were getting scammed, all kinds of stuff. So Blizzard was like, cool, we'll own the auction house so players don't get scammed. They released, I was very excited about it. They released it, I played Diablo 3, and just like almost everybody else who played it, hated the auction house. And eventually Blizzard turned it off because it wrecked the game. So... You know, but dude, this was the birth of crypto. This is where the idea of crypto came from, man. Well, so yeah, I mean, crypto <laughs> aside, like I think, I think the, I think the thing that's missing is like, um, you have to think about the psychological state and of 
of what the experiences you have. So let me give you an absurd example to kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. Let's say you go to a great restaurant, okay? And the dinner is incredible, okay? And you say, hey, get the chef out here because this was amazing. The chef comes out and you're like, chef, this was the best meal I've ever had. Thank you. And you walk out of the restaurant. Are they going to be happy? No, because you didn't pay, right? So they're going to be really pissed off about it. Now let's say you go to like your mother's house and she cooks this meal that you had when you were growing up and you're like, mom, that was the best meal ever. Here's $30. Is she going to think that's a compliment or is she going to be insulted? She's insulted, right? Mostly, you know, and now if you imagine that, to if you extract that, if you, if you extend that to dating, you go out on a date, and you, you give your date money for a good time. They're not going to take that as a positive transaction, right? They're going to be very insulted because they're like, I'm not a prostitute. What are you doing? So not everything should be a financial transaction. And I think when you turn gaming into a financial transaction, you kind of, if you're just having fun, you're kind of wrecking it if you're not making the most money you can. So now your brain is like, am I supposed to be having fun or am I supposed to be making as much money as possible? And I think it, that's a tricky area to cross. And I think, um, uh, you know, maybe someone will crack it and maybe they won't. I, but I think it's very hard to have, you know, it's a very binary kind of thing. Like you're either going out to eat and you're paying for food or you're have, or somebody's cooking for you and you're going to give them a compliment, but you can't, it's going halfway is very difficult. So, so I think a lot about that. And then the interpolarity of items is a really weird thing. Like if anybody's played a game like call of duty, you know, it, like, how do you take the world of Warcraft sword into call of duty? It, It doesn't make, I can't make sense of it. The one place where it does seem to work uh, is like Roblox, where you have this very, very broad um, kind of ecosystem where there's a creator culture behind it that's making games on the same platform. And there's a lot of consistency with the identity, like you're this little Roblox and you can appear similarly. And they're bringing items between one place and another probably makes a lot of sense. And, you know, there's things like that. But I think it's a, I think it's one of those things where, it sounds good on paper, but when you actually go to think about it from the experience of the of the user, it it I don't I fail to see the problem it solves, and um, that doesn't mean it doesn't solve a problem. I don't I just may not have the imagination, but I don't I don't buy the pitch. Um, if you if you have a second, like I want to give one other analog to this. Please keep going. I'm I'm loving each one. Um. There's a guy, he wrote the book called The Lean Startup. I think his name is Eric Rays, and which is a great book. Um, and uh, he, I think his first product was something called IMVU, which was like one of the first 3D chat computer programs. And um, he tells a story, and I, I think I'm getting it right, um, where like his thing was at, at during this time, there were all these PC chat programs, you know, like. Um, ICQ and AOL Messenger and all these kinds of things. And he was like, this is a pain in the ass because you have these 50 messenger programs and you have to go to all these different messenger programs and it's confusing. So he's like, I'm going to invent something that consolidates all the messengers into one program, one messenger program to rule them all. And you just have that and it manages everything for you and it's going to be awesome. And that was his thesis. And, uh, And then, you know, he spent a bunch of time building stuff, spent a bunch of money building it. And then he started testing it and, and he didn't know he was using it. And so he was trying to figure out, well, who's downloading this, this thing. And he saw that it was like teenage girls really downloaded a lot, which he thought was weird. 
And, you know, so he invited some of the users to the to talk to him, which probably felt, felt a little strange, but he wanted to get a, a, get the heart of this. And he was like, I'm trying to understand what's going on because you have all these chat programs and don't you want to consolidate them all into one? And they were like, no. And he was like, what? Why would you want to have all these chat programs? And they're like, well, because I use this one to talk to my friends. I use this one to talk to my parents. I use this one to talk to, you know, and I was just, and he was just like, oh shit, this was the core of that book. He was like, I made an assumption that was fundamentally wrong. And so I think a lot of this pay to earn stuff is making an assumption that's kind of like that. They're like, what's better than playing games? Getting paid to play games. No, that's not better than playing games, actually. I challenge that assumption. What's better than having stuff in a game, owning it in your real life and trading it with your friends and bringing it to other games? I don't think that's better. That might be worse. Um, Interesting. So that's kind of where my head goes. I mean, how how is the broader both investing community and video game community thinking about those 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 constructs, basically? Because you're right. Like that's been, you know, especially now that you can make money as a gamer. It's so simple to think like, oh, duh, why don't you want to make money playing games? Like, you know, people playing football, they're playing a game. They're having a great time. Like same thing as a as a gamer, you know, but like it it, for some reason, it's at least for you, it seems like it's not translating. But how is the broader industry thinking about it? Is that it is does that have legs or is it I don't know, it's I've never really thought about it as because I just don't know the community as well as you do that. I mean, I was one of those that thought, like, why? Yeah, getting paid to play games like sounds great. Something weird happens to us um, when we, when we, you know, when we, when we're wearing our user hat versus we're wearing our work hat versus we're wearing our investment hat, right? So it's important to understand the perspective that you have when you're. So if you put on your if you put on your investor hat and you start looking around at like play to earn or, you know, NFTs owning things, what you see is there's a lot of money going around, right? There's a lot of money being invested. There's a lot of businesses being spun up. There's a lot of really intelligent sounding articles you can read or podcasts you can see. But, and, and when you're looking at that stuff, you're looking at it from the perspective of an investor and the investor's perspective is I want to put money, I want to put X dollars in and I want to get like 10 X dollars out as quickly as I can. And you see people doing that. And that makes you think this must be a good business, right? Because look, these guys have jets and stuff um, and they're, you know, naming stadiums or whatever. Um, and I think this is incredibly dangerous. So I think what you have to do is you you have to keep on your user hat while you look at the investment thing, right? So, um, so I mean, I mean, is it burnout? Is that really what like like is some of these folks that have been playing? You know, they you know the, the play to earn. You know, I mean, is there is there just like a general like I think about it also when it comes to like YouTubers? You know, that used to vlogging used to be a huge thing it's still popular but like when you like these people were making a ton of money just literally vlogging about their everyday lives and i always thought to myself like that is so not sustainable where you're gonna do this for the rest of your life and that's it like because most of them aren't thinking beyond you know just trying to make money vlogging on a daily basis you know i sometimes think about that as a gamer itself it's like okay i'm gonna be you know i'm gonna do my twitch stream every single day you know you're gonna get you're going to get burnt out as a content creator. Yeah. Oh yeah, so so I don't think 
I mean, I don't know because I haven't dug into it enough. So I'm speaking a little bit from ignorance. And it'd be great if somebody listening could point me at stuff. Yeah, please. Um, But I have not seen a play-to-earn Web3 game that did incredibly well from the perspective of it has millions of users and makes tons of money. From what I see, uh, they've done very well at raising capital on that promise and you know stuff like nfts does really well because i bought it for ten dollars it's hot potato i sell it to you for 15 you sell it for 20 and at some point the music stops and that person is left with a two dollar potato um i've seen that but i haven't seen the actual behavioral transformations or the value that it creates a great example of and that's what that's what i mean by keeping your user hat on by keeping your user hat on i mean Look at what behaviors are changing and at what scale they're changing. So when I see NFTs, Web3, pay to earn, the behavior I see changing is the behavior of investors, of publishers, and some developers. I do not see massive behavior change of players. Okay. Um, crypto was very, very similar. Like I I was I think I had some Bitcoin like way back when and I lost it probably, you know. Um, and that's okay. Not a lot, you know, because I thought Bitcoin was really cool. You know, when it was first started, I was like, this is a very interesting idea. And, you know, this is before Mt. Gox and all that stuff. And I had friends that were talking about it and I'm kind of a nerd. So I downloaded, you know, stuff and I'm like, oh, this is awesome. Like the transaction history is in the, is on the thing. This is very cool. And then I kind of ignored it for a long time. And then it got really hot, especially after the pandemic. And it got tied to all this crazy stuff. Like it's the energy of the universe and it's going to you know, keep us alive when governments fail. And I'm like, Jesus, what are these people talking about? And so what I saw was a lot of people getting money, getting rich from hype. But my own personal life did not benefit or was detracted because I didn't like I looked at it like so if I have Bitcoin on my phone what can I do that I can't do now and the answer is absolutely nothing so it has no use to me whatsoever the only use it has is if you believe that it's a good store of value if there is a big collapse or inflation continues forever that kind of makes sense to me I don't think that's going to happen so it doesn't have any value but these people that were like look I can instantly buy stuff I'm like I can do that with a credit card like right now. I mean, it's, yeah, okay. The transaction gets processed tonight. I don't give a shit about that. I can buy it right now. So there's no change in behavior. But if you look at like, say, chat GPT, okay, I'm seeing big behavioral shift very, very rapidly. You know, like people are starting to use it to do all kinds of crazy stuff, the the advanced AI stuff. So I'm really, when I'm trying to evaluate something that's like a new technology. I'm really interested in like, is it changing user behavior in a fundamental way? And if it's not, then it's probably either a fad or some kind of hype machine that's just spinning away. Or, you know, and if it is, then it's something that's meaningful, you know? And, you know, they can, it can be fuzzy, like, because in the, in the late nineties, when the, when the web was exploding, it was both, it was a incredibly speculative bubble, but there was also a lot of behavior that was changing. So it can be tricky. But I think, you know, going back to what I was saying, like, you got to keep your user hat on and really ask the question, like, how does this change my life? How does this benefit me? And then as it pertains to gaming, like, if you don't play games, you probably can't answer that question. And if you can't answer that question, it's probably very hard to invest in those businesses because they may not be in your circle of competence. You know, it's sort of like if you said, hey, Herman, you know, what's the best? pharmaceutical company to invest in and i'm like i don't know anything about pharmaceuticals so i totally guessing 
you know, or what do you think about that trial that failed with that company? I say, like, I don't know anything about that, you know? So I think, um, but you really got to, I think it's important to exercise that discipline of like looking at, you know, where the behaviors in people are changing as opposed to the customers, the users, not the speculators, you know? Absolutely. No, that, that was great. All right. Well, we've, we've talked a lot. We have covered so many different things. I'm going to have to have you back on to, to talk more about, you know, various aspects of the gaming industry. I mean, I'm, you know, there's new stuff going on all the time. So definitely we'll have you back on to talk about some of these big news items as, as they come due. But, you know, the closest, closest out here today, you know, looking at 2023, you know, you've alluded to a few things, but are there any other trends or things that we should understand when looking at the gaming industry or that you're looking at? Um, so to me, the thing that I think, uh, is there's a few things that I think are, are interesting that are happening. Um, of course, you know, VR and AR gaming is a really interesting area because VR has been sort of promised almost for decades. Like the first VR headsets were back in the late nineties and it died. So VR has died a few times. Um, and it may die again. I don't know, but that's an area that's pretty interesting. Um, especially with like Sony's new uh, VR2 glasses coming out soon. I'm pretty excited for some of those experiences. And of course, Facebook is willing to burn prodigious amounts of cash to do it. Um, That's an interesting area. The other area that I think is very interesting is like, you know, consoles were supposed to die a long time ago and they have not died yet. And I think that's really surprising in some ways you know um but they haven't and so will will the will this console cycle continue and this is especially i think valuable for like nintendo people people who follow nintendo stock because nintendo sort of has this history of like they make these they have this these incredible ips but they're only on their own console so once in a while they make a great console and they do really well once in a while they make a derpy console and then the stock falls off a cliff and is their stock terminally in that state or do they get out of that um, that's interesting. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of consolidation, like the Microsoft deal and stuff. I think those are interesting. And then the last one is, you know, this, there's a real interesting thing going on with, um, uh, the tools around content creation are getting unbelievably good. Like if you look at what people are doing with the unreal engine and the collaboration between, um, NVIDIA and Epic, and a lot of game studios are abandoning their own game engines and just switching over to Unreal. And, you know, there's the war between Unreal and Unity kind of going on. So uh, it's getting a lot easier to make incredibly um, realistic, high-resolution stuff to the point where, like, I don't know if you've seen it, but, like, some of the stuff is, like, you can all, you can barely tell it's not real humans. So I think we're getting close to where you could have synthetic humans basically in video games and stuff. And um, I mean, that's just sort of a continuation of games becoming more realistic, but um, it's, it's, that's a pretty exciting area to watch too. Very cool. All right. Well, Herman with that um, again, thank you for everything that you, you shared with us here today. Where can our audience go and find more information on you uh, follow you uh, on, on social media as well as your website? The best place to, to 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 find all that is just look find me on Twitter, and it's at p e t e r s h k. That's my archaic Twitter handle from two thousand nine. But you can search my name, and it's pretty easy to find. But that's probably the best place. 
And for everyone, that's Herman with two N's. Okay. At the end. <laughs> that's just to right. make sure. Yeah. So, so Herman, thanks. Thank you so much again, man. I really appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe. And we'll definitely have you back on at some point this year, for sure. Thank you. I appreciate thanks. it. Thanks, man. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast podcast.